Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua, and we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. We're looking this morning at an interesting title there. You see that title of that message? Sin's Devastating Effect. We're going to look this morning at uh, a really bad day in the life of the Israelites. Chapter 7, Joshua 7. You ever had a really good day, only for it to be followed by a really bad day? That's what we've got here. I mean, think in terms of what it says in the Bible, okay? Just look at your Bibles with me, and we're just going to read these two kind of verses or parts of these two verses, and then we're going to come back. It says in verse 27 at the end of chapter 6, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. Boom, great day, right? Banner day. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel, I graduated college. I knew God was leading me into ministry. I surrendered to that. And we were going in the track of going to seminary, going to get our master's and this and that. But we weren't married yet, so we were about three, uh, three and a half months away from, uh, from moving or getting married and moving to where we were going to eventually go. So what we would, what we would do is, is she would come down for a weekend, and then the next weekend I would go up to her parents' house where she was living at and stay the whole weekend, and that's how it went. And I'll never forget one of the, one of the last times I went up to her parents' home and spent the entire weekend up there. I would get off work at Friday on, at 5 o'clock, and I would drive straight to her parents' house, and we'd spend the entire weekend together. But what we would do is I would leave on Sunday night, and I would leave really, really late on Sunday night, right? I'm going to be there as long as I possibly can. And so that particular night, I left at about 9 or 9.30, and I had a three and a half hour drive to get home. I had to be at work at 8 a.m. the next morning, so I was dead dog tired the next day. Made it home safely. Get up, have an long day of work. Uh, there in the office, and I had a cubicle, and I had computers in front of me, and screens in front of me, and I worked all day long in front of computers, and I was dead dog tired, and I was on my way home. I'll never forget it, and I'm in my car, and as I'm driving in my car, something is sitting right here on the passenger side seat, and it, as we were coming up to a stoplight, slides off into the floor, and my attention was going from who was in front of me to seeing what was in the floor, and as soon as I looked down, and I looked up, there's a brand new F-150 that's about 20 feet away from me. And I slam on the brakes and I went right into the back of that F-150 and I had a cheap old car that was immediately totaled. A great day, a great weekend for my wife and I, not my wife and I then, but my fiance and I then, turned into the very next day I've totaled my car just literally a few months away from us getting married. That's a great way to start. New life together. A bad day that turned into a, or a good day rather than turned into a bad day. Well, here's the thing that's what is going on here for the Israelites. Although it is not accidental, it is actually intentional. They're sinning, they're sin in the camp, so to speak. It centers around a man by the name of Achan, and we're going to learn about him this morning. This has been a powerful story. God has moved powerfully among his people, right? In Israel, he's moved among his people as they have crossed the Jordan River. They've come into the promised land. They have covenanted themselves together towards him and towards each other. They've had the covenant meal. God has then given them the city of Jericho, as we saw last week. Gives them this incredibly large, fortified, militarily superior city, state that is there. All they had to do was march around the the, the walls of Jericho, yell and do exactly what God tells them to do and this city would be theirs. And they guess what they did? They took God up on his offer. You see, what God had told his people to do was that they were to, 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 to 
to leave it all to the Lord. They were not to take the, they were not to loot the place. They were simply to take the city and then move on to the next city because the first fruits of what God was doing belonged to him. That's what they were supposed to do. It was a high moment. They're riding high, but then this powerful story turns bad. But then guess what? It's going to turn good again. The end of chapter seven, beginning in chapter eight, it's going to turn good again. But in chapter seven, we got to deal with this really, really bad day and bad kind of example or season in the life of God's people here in Israel. It's the story of Achan, a man who was a part of God's people, a man who had seen everything that that Joshua had certainly seen and the rest of the nation had seen. And yet, he's going to miserably fail. God had tested his people, as we saw and we spoke of a moment ago in Jericho. God had told his people, go into Jericho, but don't take anything. This was God's plan. This was God's power that brought the walls down. This was God who was delivering his people. This wasn't the people of Jericho doing anything except obeying God. And God was doing all of the work. And this is what he promised them. If you do things my way, if you do things in my way, then things will go well for you and there will be joy. By the way, that's how it is in our relationship with God. You know, if, God, if, you, if you want God's blessing and favor in your life, yes, difficult seasons come in our life. We are people that are affected by sin. We're surrounded by sinful practices and sinful systems and, and all kinds of different things. But the fact of the matter is God is still with you. And he's going to bless you even in the midst of difficulties as we've just been singing about this morning. If you do things God's way, Marriage works when you do things God's way. Family works when you do things God's way. Uh, A church works when you do things God's way. His power and his presence are there. They're there. And when you do things God's way and you walk with Jesus Christ the way he wants you to walk, there is joy. Even in the midst of difficult days, there is joy, incredible joy. If you don't walk in his way, then things go really, really bad for you and for us in our lives. Think about the story here. Jericho is a high moment in the history of Israel. The leaders of of God's people come to him, come to Joshua and say, well, what's next? You know, we've taken Jericho. What's next? The next city state, if you will. Well, the next city state is Ai. I want you to think about Canaan not as a nation, a united nation like us, where we have states that are all connected together, that all go to bat for each other, that was a region, it was a place, a particular region there in the Middle East, and it was populated by city-states that were all independent from one another. These were city-states. These were not united states. These were not united cities. They're all independent. And so when Joshua, when Jericho falls, it's not as though the city that we're going to learn about here in chapter 7, AI, literally AI, and that's how you say it, AI, wasn't going to come out of their walls and come to the rescue of, the, of those in Jericho. No, they're just kind of observing and watching what's happening over there at that city-state. But when Jericho falls, mighty Jericho falls, AI is a fraction of what, and the size of Jericho. The size of the city, the number of the people, military might of this city. And so they're watching from a distance. When the leaders come to, God, to Joshua and say, well, what's next? We've got this little city over here in Jericho, or sorry, AI, uh, the story begins to take a turn. We're going to move into the story. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to read portions of it. I'm going to tell you the story, and then what God has to say to us here on the back end is very, very important. But I'll say it this way on the front end of the story. 
God's people grew overconfident. A really, really good day in Jericho turned into a really, really bad day in Ai. Look at chapter one, or chapter seven, verse one. It says, but the people of Israel broke He's taken them across the Jordan River. He's taken them into the promised land. He's, he's taken and, and, and brought about victory in Jericho, but now they have experienced this crushing defeat that in verse five, at the end of verse five, melts the hearts of the people and their hearts became like water. All of their bravado gone. All of their courage gone. All of their trust, by the way, in the Lord's gone in this space. They don't understand. They don't understand what God is doing. Why in the world did we go up against this small city and 36 of us die and all of them are on the run back to Jericho? What is going on? By the way, they know nothing about what has happened here with Achan. So Joshua turns to the Lord. He's the one who led them there. He's the one who appointed Joshua. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt and sustained them in the desert. He's the one who's giving them this promised land. And there in verse 6, Joshua turns to the Lord. Everything had fallen apart. Now it's this incredible work of God of how he's miraculously led them to this place only for them to be met with defeat. God's the one who had the plan in Jericho. God had the plan to, to take Jericho. They executed the plan. They, they, they had victory. However, what's missing in AI? They didn't ask the Lord what he wanted him to do. But the result, of course, ends up with this incredible defeat. What should we do? I want you to think in terms of our relationship with God for a moment. Just pause in the story. We tend to think of God as how? Who? Someone who is gentle, someone who is compassionate, and he certainly is. When we come to him on a Sunday morning, when we come to him in our everyday life, he is a God who is compassionate. He is a God who, who, who listens to us. He is a God who, who speaks into our life. He is a God who is gentle. I mean, he exercises a tremendous amount of patience in my life. Doesn't he in yours? Bring all of that to bear to what we see right here, beginning in verse 10. Because look at God's reaction in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> Why have you fallen on your face? You see, the, the Lord is, or Joshua meets the Lord, not as someone who is compassionate and not as someone who is gentle in this, in this particular space, in this particular time. He meets a God who is angry, he means a God who is angry with his people. They are not a group of individuals. They are God's people. They are a family. They are a covenant. They have covenanted themselves together with him and with each other. And when one sins, they're all guilty. They all bear the responsibility and the brunt of God's wrath. Which we're seeing now an indicator of what's going on here with God's people. Notice what he says in verse 10, what God says. Verse 11, not Achan has sinned. What does it say? Israel has sinned. Y'all have sinned. That's Texan. Y'all have sinned. Not Achan, but Israel has sinned. They have transgressed, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. 
that they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have stolen, and lied and put them among their own belongings. You've got to understand, there is something unique and different when it comes to how we covenant with the Lord. When the Lord enters into this relationship with us, we are not silo individual in our individuals in our relationship with him. We all are collectively his people, right? This is how he's viewing them. He's not viewing them as all individual people who follow him. They are viewing them as a nation, and when one of them has sinned, then they are all complicit in it, which is interesting. So let's continue on. God held the entire nation responsible. Look at what happens here. Therefore, the people of Israel, verse 12, cannot stand before their enemies. You chose to go away from me, God says. Therefore, you can't stand against your enemies. They turn their backs. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Here was the real problem. The real problem was the reaction to the sin in their relationship or in, their, in, their, in the nation, among the people. The real problem was the, not that there was sin specifically, yes, it is a problem, and it is a problem sometimes in our lives, every day in our lives, when we sin against God, but it is, as we're going to see here with Achan, not so much with the people, but with Achan itself and with him, there was an unwillingness to change. And what's the result? They lost their anointing, they lost the power, they lost the presence of God, there was no success. So what does God tell Joshua? He says, do this to regain my power. Do this to regain my presence. Do this to regain my anointing and then move on. Look at verse 13. Get up. Consecrate the people. Consecrate meaning set aside yourself. Set aside for my specific purposes. There's another word for that in the Bible called holy. Be holy. You are holy. You are consecrated. Set aside yourself for spiritual work, right? That's what consecrate means. Get up. God says to him, consecrate the people, set them aside from my work, say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So he gives them this plan. He tells them to be swift, he tells them to be immediate, and it tells us there that that day, I'm not going to read it all, but it tells us that that day, Joshua and the people of God begin to search for what is going on. They have no idea who has taken what. They don't know uh, wh when it was taken. They don't know where it is hidden. They just know that God has revealed to them that there is someone who has sinned within the camp, and he was still living within that, who was unrepentant, who was living that way, and it has affected all of them. And so he tells them to consecrate themselves, to be swift and immediate. That day, they, they cast lots. In fact, this is what they do. And this was a way in which they determined back in those days what and who, you know, they made decisions with their lives or made decisions within their own people. They cast lots. And so they narrowed it down to, went through every tribe, and then they narrowed it down to the clan, and then they narrowed it down to the family, and the lot fell to Achan. And they had their smoking gun. They knew exactly what had happened. And so it says that they dealt with it that particular day. 
They confront Achan about it. Look down at verse 20, and Achan answered, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Verse 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and they took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers. See, they didn't think about it. They didn't have a prayer meeting about it. They didn't have a conference about it. They didn't have a committee meeting about it. They just dealt with it. He just dealt with it. That day, verse 22, Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. They didn't walk. They ran to the tent. God's favor, God's anointing, God's blessing, his power, the success of the entire nation rested upon this. So they ran. Verse 22, behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent, and they brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all the Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, his whole families, oxen, donkeys, all of it. And they burned it. And they destroyed him. Verse 25 says, And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble upon you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, and they stoned them with stones. And they raised over them a heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. Seems so harsh, seems so difficult. Family was complicit in all of it. Sin is ugly, but it has to be dealt with in our lives in our personal lives. But I love this, because a really good day turned into a really bad day, which then in turn turns back into a really good day. Because verse 26 gives way to chapter 8, verse 1, and we're just going to read the first part of chapter 8. Look at it. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men, not 3,000, take all the fighting men with you and arise and go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, in his land. And we're going to learn about that next week. Did you see the Lord took a really good day, which led to a really bad day, and turned it into a really good day? By the way, it speaks of the mercy and the grace of God. If you can't see his mercy and his grace in that, then you need to look further. You need to look clearer. God is a God of mercy and he's a God of grace. I want you to think about Achan with me this morning. I mean, Achan had been there. He had eaten manna in the wilderness. He had seen God move among him. He, he was with Achan, and Achan saw the same things that all of the people had seen. Joshua had seen. He most likely followed Moses with his life, and then he gets to a place here where he comes to the edge of the Jordan River. He, with his own eyes, sees the water of the Jordan River dammed up by God himself, not by any human way, human uh, ingenuity, but by God himself. He sees the, the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the 
Jordan Riverbed, which, by the way, it was overflowing its banks before it happened, before this happens. The priests are standing in the riverbed. Achan is there. He has a front row seat to this. He sees God move in a powerful way. He, he sees when they step out of the Jordan River, the waters come back and overflow their banks again. And the water just lap up onto the, onto the, the banks of the Jordan River again. And they are amazed. And he was there. And he had a front row seat to the great and mighty work of God. He was there. And made the conscious decision to be circumcised, to enter into this covenant relationship with God once again, to follow God fully with his heart. Achan was there on the banks of the Jordan River, healing like all the rest of the men were doing. He came to that covenant meal, and he participated in it. He he was there when Joshua came back from being with the commander of the army of the Lord that night, and when he says to his men, he says to the entire nation, to all of the soldiers, he says, listen, you do not have to pull your swords out. All you have to do is every day for the next six days march around, and we are going to trust God. We are going to do things God's way. We are going to follow God, and we're going to see what God does. And he took him up on it. Think about Achan. Think about the faith that he was exercising. Think about the work that he had done, the decision, the conscious decision in his heart to follow God. Think about the conscious decision in his heart to to not only follow God out towards Jericho, but to do it six times. And then on the seventh time to see God bring those walls down. And how his faith rose in that space. Over the course of that week, a man whose faith was rising within his heart as the walls of Jericho were falling down, and yet he sees, he's tempted, and he falls. And it wasn't that he just sinned. By the way, we all sin. It was that he sinned and he was masquerading as one of God's warriors. He had walked by faith, but there was something inside of of, of Achan's heart that had betrayed him that no one else knew about outside of maybe most likely his family. They knew what was under the tent, and they had done nothing about it. But but Achan, no one else knows about this. And and yet he's masquerading as a man who has faith in God. He's masquerading as one who's going to take on the next city, and we're going to trust God in this. All the while, he's disobeyed God. And he's made God angry. What's God's purpose for showing all of this to us? I think it's important because the reason why God puts the story here for us to understand is to understand that God's promises, God promises a day of judgment for any believer who lives, listen, with unrepentant and undealt with sin. You've got to deal with the sin in your heart. We all do. And when our lives and in our hearts, it's not as though, it's not just that we sin, it's in what we do with our sin. Are we willing and can we continue to try to praise God with our voices and with our hands raised, and yet at the same time live a secret life, deceiving the people around us and continuing to sin in the secret spaces, in the dark spaces of our lives? Because the fact of the matter is there are things in our hearts, there are things in some of our lives that no one else knows about. But as we sit on the front end, God does. And he has a way in our lives. Listen, church, he has a way in our lives, in his timing, to expose it. Why? Because he loves you so much and he cares so much. He cares too much about your life to allow you to continue to go down those roads of destruction that will ultimately lead to destruction in your life. 
He'd rather you go through some short amount of pain and struggle as you're trying to deal with that area of sin in your life on the short end rather than a lifelong, uh, uh, kind of a, a life of, of suffering internally in your life that leads to judgment and destruction when it comes to God. Just think about sin for a moment. Let's think about how it creeps into our lives, right? What's the process of how it leads to and how sin even enters into our lives? Well, if you want to know that and understand that, then all you have to do is turn to the book of James. James chapter 1 explains to us how we even get to a place of sin in our lives, okay? So stay with me this morning. I'm going to read just a few verses from James chapter 1. You can write these down, and I want you to go back and look at them later. You should read them, think about them, pray through them, meditate on them, ask the Lord about them. But it says this, this is what James says in chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now listen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So there's your process. Y'all been fishing before? You know, when you go fish, what are you trying to do? Those of you who are really good fishermen, what are you trying to do? You're trying to trick or deceive the fish into thinking that that fish is, is looking at or is attracted to a what? A bait. So you have different colors of baits. You have different topwater baits or lower, you know, deeper baits. You have different things you're doing with the pole. You're jigging with it or things of that nature. But what are you doing? You're trying to get the attention of the fish. You're trying to get that attention of, of you're trying to dangle that shiny little object in their face so that once, in the, once in, and when they get to a place where they just can't stand it anymore, bam. And then what are you doing? You've got them. Understand that this is exactly how James chapter 1 describes how what Satan does in our lives, what the devil does in our lives. It is not his fault necessarily that I sin. Now listen, stay with me. Satan is the originator of it, of the temptation. He is the one who tempts us with evil. He is the one who tempts us with things. But at the end of the day, what does James say and put the bullseye on? Our desires. In other words, what God says is there, there is the desire in our life that at some point in our life, we, are, we have these two choices. We, we can choose to follow the Lord with our life, or we can choose to follow our own heart in our own way. By the way, that is what's happening in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3. God puts before Adam and Eve the choice, the tree of the, uh, of the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, don't give near it. Don't touch it. Don't eat of it. But Eve is there and Adam is there. And what does the serpent do? He begins to sow little questions in their minds, creating doubt about God, curiosity about certain things until they bite of the fruit. And they sin. And we all are broken as a result of that. But, but the progression is this. He says, God doesn't tempt us. God does not tell you to do one thing and then come alongside you and go, come on, I want you to break what I've told you to do. Don't do what I told you to do. That's what James is saying. He's saying that's ridiculous. God does not tempt anyone to do something that he's already told you not to do. He says, but, I, he says, uh, but each one is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the one who's luring us, the one who's enticing us is Satan himself, but he's doing so towards our desires. And then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, which is why we have the verses in Scripture that say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is what? Death, Romans 6.23, right? We get this and we understand this, but this is the progression. This is the process of how our lives even lead to sin. Think about that in terms of the story of Achan. He sees the shining object. He sees it laying there. He knows what God has said, but in that space, in that moment, he's thinking more about him, his own self rather than the, the commands of God. And he thinks that maybe if I just take them and I hide them, nobody will find out. Nobody will know. Certainly, he's not thinking about God. As we see in the story, God sees it all. God looks at how we are going to respond to that sin, however, even when we fail. He looks to see how we're going to respond to it. What will we do with it in our lives? His, his, his reaction, Aiken's reaction rather, is the main problem here because he lives in it. He doesn't pick it up and then put it back down. He takes it. He hides it. He buries it. Nobody will know about it. He knew it was wrong. You can go back to chapter 6, verse 18. You can see how God had already laid that out for the people. They weren't to take anything. So Achan takes the items and then he lives with it. He lives with that knowledge. He even knows about it when the nation, the 3,000, go up against the, the, the people of Ai. He, he knows he's disobeyed. He knows he's rebelled against God, but he's willing to listen, live in it. And here's the key. The key was there was no godly sorrow that led to healing or redemption or restoration. You see, when you live unrepentant in your life long enough, it just becomes normal. Stay with me. It just becomes normal. It just becomes who you are. Nobody knows about it. It's secretly down in there. God promises, however, a day of judgment. I wonder what Achan was thinking about. Maybe he, he'd grown indifferent towards it. I don't know. Maybe he had minimized it. Well, it was only a little bit. I mean, did you see the, I walked in front of her, I walked by like thousands of bars of gold. I only took one. And he minimized it. Maybe he did that. I don't know. Maybe he lived in defeat in the sense that he had taken it and then he saw himself as a bad person so he just buried it and he, yeah, I don't know what to do with it so I'm just going to bury it. Maybe nobody will find out. Nobody will know. Maybe he was paralyzed with fear. Hope that nobody finds out. At the next stop, I'm going to get rid of it. I don't, I don't know what his motive was. I don't know what he was living with but, but the fact of the matter is God did see it and he grew to become unrepentant with this sin. And maybe you're sitting there this morning, you're saying, man, that's old covenant stuff. That's Old Testament stuff. But that's certainly not how God deals with us and works in our lives. Well, let me just share with you a couple short stories from the New Testament. One we see in Acts chapter five. This is how God dealt with sin among God's people in the early church. In Acts chapter five, there, there, was, a, there was a couple, their names were Ananias and Sapphira, what the people of God had done, the church had done in that day and time, is they decided they were going to bring all their property together. They are going to give it all together for the sake of each other and for the sake of, <clears throat> excuse me, the poor. 
tells us in Acts chapter 5, verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and he brought, uh, he brought only a part of the sales of the land and laid it at the apostles' feet. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? It wasn't that he, what he was doing, it was that he had done it and he had sinned against God and he had sinned against the people of God in that way. Tells us in verse 5 of that story, Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon him and all who heard of it. Later it tells us his wife uh, 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 dies as well. God takes their lives. So that sounds harsh. That's not anywhere else in the New Testament. Maybe that's an isolated event, but it tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is actually talking to the church in Corinth and he says, listen, you're taking the Lord's Supper in an improper way. That was part of the issue in the church. And in fact, in his instruction to the church in Corinth, God's people, he says to them this. He says these pertinent words. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And then he says this, and that is why many of you in the church, Corinth, are weak and are sick and that's why some of you have died. Because they had unconfessed sin in their heart, undealt with sin in their heart, and they were coming to the Lord's Supper table. God had actually taken their life. God had actually made them ill. God had actually made them sick because they were outside of God's will. They were not living right in the eyes of God. And on and on, there are multiple stories in the New Testament that we can point to. The fact of the matter is God deals and, and looks at our sin in a very serious way, and he wants our sin to be dealt with. He wants us to deal with these things. What I want to encourage you with this morning is that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Always has been, there always will be. And the fact of the matter is, what God says to you and I is, is what he says even to the, the people of Israel in, in, in Joshua chapter 7. We, if we deal with the sin, if we deal with the issues of our life by way of Jesus Christ on this side of, of Christ, then God begins to heal us. He begins to change us. Listen, when we break from God's covenant, God's going to be faithful to his covenant with us through Christ. He doesn't throw you away. So when you sin and when you make mistakes in your life, what I want to encourage you with is this, that when you fail, because you will, when you sin, when you come back to him, we understand that the Bible says that when we come back to him, we confess and we repent of our sins. What is he faithful to do? Forgive us of our sins. He does. He remakes our life. He renews our life. He restores our life in every way. That's the beauty and the benefit of the covenant we have in Jesus Christ. You did not do anything to deserve the work of Jesus on the cross. It was one way, agape love, right? That's what he modeled for us. That's what he shows us. And yet, he's extremely patient with us. And he waits for us to recognize our sin, recognize when I'm outside of God's will and confess it and repent of it and then come back to him and he doesn't look at me and he doesn't hold this, this kind of grudge over my life like we sometimes do to each other, right? He doesn't look at me and say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, love you, but you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna see how this goes. What does he do? He loves us and he embraces us and he welcomes us back. Is that's the beauty of the grace and the mercy of God. That's what we remember. It's God's grace and his mercy. We're two guilty parties. The pathway of restoration and redemption 
in your life, listen, flows from brokenness over our sin that leads to godly sorrow and repentance. Just ask David in the Bible. What a beautiful story. What a tragic story, but then what a beautiful story. What does David do? God has appointed David. David didn't earn the spot he had. God came to David and anointed him. David rose to to prominence by way of just simply trusting the God at which he had followed by walking onto a battlefield and taking out Goliath. It It wasn't about David. It was about the God of David in that space. God's name was glorified on that battlefield that day. And yet God uses that story to elevate David to prominence, to make him the king eventually, the king of God's people. And when he's in that place, he's in that space, in that particular uh, 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 title and in that particular position, he grows to a place of boredom one day and he decides he's not going to go out and lead his people into battle. He's going to find himself on the top of his, of his castle one day, on his palace one day, walking around in the wrong place at the wrong time. He looks down and he sees a woman bathing and she has no clothes on. He's attracted to this woman and so he sends for this woman. He has an affair with this woman who happens to be married to one of the soldiers who follows David, who's fighting for David, only to have an affair, only to then orchestrate a, a plan to, uh, to take out her husband And to have him killed. And it takes God sending a prophet to David to open his eyes. This is a man who writes the Psalms. This is a man who is is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet in that space, in that moment, he is completely blinded to his own sin. He's only thinking about himself. And yet, if you read these Psalms, if you read the brokenness of, of David when he came to a place of brokenness in his life that led to redemption and forgiveness by God, it is overwhelming. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32 in reaction to after God has broken him, after God has led him to godly sorrow, David has experienced the forgiveness of God. Blessed is the one, this is Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, David said, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity no more. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule, God says to David, without understanding which must be curbed with the bit and the bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the beauty of forgiveness. The beauty that we have in Christ is this. Whatever you're dealing with in your heart, whatever's rattling around in your life, whatever people don't know about, the the Bible says it's time to clean the wound. 
You can't cover up the wound. You can't put a band-aid on the wound because what's going to happen? The, the, the infection internally inside the body is going to continue to fester and fester and fester and get worse and worse. The Bible says it's painful to go through that, that season of confession and repentance. Just ask David. And there are consequences to that. But it's healthier in the long run. Because then God then blesses. He anoints. His power is there. So the Bible says to you and I this morning, confess your sins. Repent of them. He's faithful. Go to them. He's faithful to go to you. He is faithful to forgive you. He's faithful to restore you. And by the way, that bad day turns into the good day. So we're going to see next week, chapter 8, God gets his people back on track, and they start following him again, and they start being successful again. But God wants you and I this morning just as he did with God's people, is to deal with that sin in our life, to confess it, to repent of it. But listen, repentance that leads to, from godly sorrow that leads to repentance is what truly changes your heart. You've got to be willing to own it, deal with it, confess it, repent it, move on from it. God will heal you. God will restore you. I promise you. He's done it in my life. He'll do it in your life. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. You know, with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, listen, this morning, we're going to sing a song together just as a time of response. God's invitation to us is very clear. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. Don't leave here today without dealing with it. Don't let it fester anymore in your life. Your heart will tell you, as long as you don't say anything, it'll be okay. Your heart will tell you, if nobody else knows about it, it'll just blow over. It will not blow over. God loves you that much. I don't know what's going on in your life. No one around you may not know what's going on in your life, but God does. And it's just time to deal with those things. So we're going to have a time of response. I'll be here at the front just to sing. We're going to sing this great hymn of the faith. We're going to stand and sing. And when we do, God's saying to you this morning, if he's just asking you to come down here, telling you to come down here, you come. You can pray here at the front. You can come to me. I'll help. I'd be happy to pray with you over a matter. If you want to come join our church, maybe you want to be baptized, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you come here week in and week out, you hear the gospel of Jesus, because ultimately that's what he wants for you is to ultimately turn away from your sin and start following him with our lives. And if that's where you are this morning, I'll be here at the front to, to help lead you down that path. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna stand and sing together. Father, thank you this morning for the way in which you've speak into our hearts. We just pray your blessing on this time. God, give us courage to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.